0: as you are being seated, if you would please turn in your copies of God's Word to John, chapter 1. John, chapter 1. We're in the midst of a Christmas series going through a phrase from the angels that announced the Messiah's birth. gospel according to Christmas, as I've called it, the angel has said back in Luke, says, For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. We're going to be focusing on that phrase, is born, and what that means. And one of the clearest passages that unpacks that is from John chapter 1, to where we'll be today. If you're following along in the Pew Bible, that's page 1053. like to follow along there. Listen carefully, because this is God's Word for you. John writes, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God for his word. Let's go to our God and ask his blessing one more time on our message today. Oh Jesus, we thank you for this mystery that you have, un- that you have packaged for us here in your word. I ask that you would give us clarity into it. Help me speak in words that are helpful and clear, that we may receive and rejoice. ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We have gotten way too used to the story of Christmas. We've heard it so often that we tend to forget what a miracle this is. We, it's really quite something to understand, and really is something that the whole Bible has been leading up to. And that is this mystery of the Word becoming flesh. God taking on human nature while not giving up any of his godness, but yet not sacrificing anything of his humanness to make that happen. 100% God and 100% man. And if your head is hurting, then you're probably thinking about it correctly. Because this is a divine mystery. And far from this being just another one of those nerdy seminary things that certain people get really excited about, this is actually something that should give you quite a lot of comfort and should actually give you, this is actually the bedrock of how your salvation is possible. Without this mystery, as we see both in this passage and in quite a number of others, which we'll look at, it wouldn't be possible for you to celebrate Christmas or to celebrate your salvation at all. And that's what we're going to look at as we examine our two points as always. The first, and these are going to kind of, inter, uh, are going to kind of interweave as we go through here, so it's, it's not going to be necessarily a, a part one and then a part two, but both of these things will be happening in concert together as we go along. The first point that I want us to keep in mind is that God became fully human to be a true substitute for us why it was necessary for him to become a human being. He had to be a substitute for us. But as we see in verse 2, or excuse me, in point 2, that God remained fully God to be a total satisfaction for God's wrath. We're going to see how we needed to have an infinite sacrifice in order to pay for an infinite debt that we owed. So we're going to take a look at this here out of John chapter 1. Now, this book John was written by the Apostle John, the one who got one of the twelve who got to walk with Jesus for his three years of public ministry. John was one who was probably one of the inner, kind of part of the inner circle of disciples. When Jesus was transfigured on the mountain, John was the one that got to see that. Uh, When he was there for the the, when the resurrection happened, John got to see the resurrection. In fact, he makes a note that he beat Peter in running to that tomb. little bit of pettiness there, but we'll forgive John for that. He was someone who was an eyewitness of Jesus while Jesus was on earth, at times even when Jesus, when no one else was watching, he was there. And he comes and makes this incredible statement as he's opening up the biography of Jesus, and he starts not at the beginning of Jesus's birth. He goes all the way back, literally, To the beginning. Not the beginning of a ministry, but to the beginning of the world. And he uses the term in the beginning was the word. And as we'll find out later, the the word is tied to Jesus. That Jesus is the Word. That this is referring to him in that way. It says, In the beginning, all the way at the start of things, was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. This is not to say that by using the word was, that Jesus was demoted from godhood, far from it, but this is just saying he always has been God from the very beginning, but yet somehow distinct from God as well. When he uses this, well, word, word, there is a lot of weight that's behind this. A lot of commentators have pointed out that there is, when God uses this, when this word is used of word, this isn't just air passing through the lungs of God, as it were, but word is action. When a word comes to the prophets, this was revelation from God, not only of what he expected them to do, but who he was. When there was a word of salvation, this meant that God was going to do something for their deliverance. And there are passages that mark on on those things. But now, we're getting in chapter 1, that the Word is doing something far different now. This Word is going to become flesh and dwell with us. We lose the shock value of that statement. Because we're expecting Jesus to be divine. That's why we're reading a book. That's why we're all here. Because we've already accepted the fact that Jesus is God and he is divine. But can you imagine? I've been here for about three years. If one of the elders got up and was trying to write my biography and claimed that I was the Alpha and the Omega. That through me all things were created. And without Mark Jessup nothing would be made that was made. We laugh a little bit thinking about that because it just sounds absurd, because it is. I'm just a human being. But we miss that about Jesus, someone that we could touch, could smell Jesus' breath, and yet be told that this is the eternal God, the same one who holds the universe together, who sent the plagues in Egypt, who delivered his people into the promised land, and the one who's now sitting here eating some bread, same person. This is not the only place that this is claimed either. This is not just saying it's like, well, you know, John got a little carried away with the whole Jesus thing. It's not. There are actually several other places that we could look at. This isn't just the only place John mentions it either. Like he was trying to get your attention or something here in chapter one. is going to backtrack as he gets later on in the gospel. Far from it. He's going to mention this again in John chapter 10, verses 30 and 33. In fact, this is coming from the mouth of Jesus. This isn't just something that John thought that Jesus would say he'd get carried away with. Look at what Jesus himself says in John chapter 10, verse 30. He says, I and the Father are one. And to help us understand what that meant... The Jews are here to provide us an extra commentary. Verse 31, the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I have shown I have shown you many good works for my father. For which of them are you going to stone me? And the Jews answered him, it is not for good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. The Jews understood what Jesus was claiming to be. They could look at him and they said, you look just like the rest of us. For you to claim something like that is blasphemy. And you have to be dealt with. Be the same thing if I was to suddenly get up here and start saying those sorts of things that I and God the Father are one, you'd rightly have me committed. You must have bumped his head. But this is not the case with Jesus. He claims this again in John chapter 14, 6 through 9, but we can take a look at another witness. Another eyewitness of Jesus was Peter, who wrote not one but two books here in the Bible. And it's in his second letter, 2 Peter 1.1, 1, 1, where he says, Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus claims divinity for himself. John recognizes that divinity. Peter recognizes that divinity. And there are several other passages that would we had time to, to, to go through that all make the same explicit claim that Jesus is God. And if you want to write those down, those passages are Titus 2.13. Titus 2.13. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Romans chapter 9, verse 5, 1 Corinthians 8, 6, and 2 Thessalonians 1, 12. These are all passages that directly say Jesus is God. And there are dozens more that we could point to that are either assuming that foundation or are implying that foundation. For example, there are some passages that say that Jesus is going to be the one that will judge the world. Well, that's only a... Job that could be held by God, the creator of that. And even in just those passages, John 5, 27, Acts 10, 42, Romans 14, 10, 2 Corinthians 5, 10. Those are just the passages that say Jesus is going to judge the world. So we cannot for a second think that the Bible is not 100% claiming that Jesus is God. Scholars, and it this comes about every Christmas and every Easter, Time Magazine, National Geographic will say They'll trot out some scholar who hasn't seen the light of day in 10 years and bring him out to say it's just like, well, we don't think Jesus ever claimed to be God. It's ridiculous. Sorry, a little hot about that. Because that's what we see in the Scriptures. This is Jesus being 100% God. Now, why do we stress this so much? Is it just because I really want to make sure that you get this correct on a theology exam? No, because there are also some that would look at this truth, Jesus is God, and would say, well, you know, it doesn't really matter whether or not Jesus was God. He could be, he could not be. The important thing is what he said, which was to get along and love one another. No, that's not true. If Jesus is not God, then we are wasting our time here. We're wasting our whole lives here if Jesus isn't God. One theologian, uh, his name is Bavink, he put it this way. He said, in Christianity, Christ occupies a very different place than Buddha or Muhammad do in their respective religions. Christ is not the teacher Not the founder, but the content of Christianity. Not a teacher, not a founder, but the content. We worship Jesus. That's Christianity. It's not love your neighbor as yourself. That's a result of believing and trusting in Jesus. But it's more than that. Bob Inc. actually continues in looking at this. He says, For if Christ is not truly God, he is only a human being. And however highly he may be placed, he can neither in his person nor in his work be the content and object of the Christian faith. Christianity, now that it exists, would certainly not be dependent on him. Think of it this way. Most of the time in this Christmas season, we all either read or watch some sort of adaptation of of charles dickens a christmas carol this is a beautiful story and one that has prompted all kinds of charitable giving over the christmas season some would even say that he has sort of created the charity that exists around that but now that the story is here do we need charles dickens anymore we don't it doesn't matter whether or not charles dickens is alive or not because the power is in the story that he created And you could say that about any book and story that has been made, whether it's Tolkien's Lord of the Rings or C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia. Once the pen has finished going across the paper, the author is no longer needed. But that's not the case with Jesus. We need more than words, we need more than an example, we need a savior. That's why Jesus has to be God. If we try to say, it's like, well, we'll just follow his words and that'll be just as good as anything. Can you imagine if you were on the third story of a burning building and there was a firefighter below the window saying, you have to jump and I'll catch you. And if you were to stand back from that window and look reflective and say, hmm, what I think he's trying to say is to not hold too tightly to our possessions. I think he's trying to make a larger philosophical point about trusting the wider community as the fire licks your clothing. The way that you are saved by that firefighter is not by trusting in his words, but trusting him. And y'all, we're in a far more dangerous situation than a third story building on fire. We're facing the wrath of God for our sin that we keep committing. Even those of us that would think we're following after Jesus. We need a savior. And who can save us from God except God himself? The enemy that we're fighting is not ourselves. The thing that we need to be rescued from is not our own lack of self-esteem. The thing that we are needing rescue from is God's own wrath. So we need God to do that. But how does he do it? How does God save from wrath? Well, that's what we're getting to back in John, here in verse 14, that he becomes flesh. Now, this is important for us to think about because this, this is a very difficult concept to grasp. So we'll try to think of a lot of different ways that we can try to explain it to sound simple. But in most cases, there's some serious holes with it. Some would say, it's like, okay, well, what Jesus did is he took his divinity and kind of like squeezed into a human suit, a zipper in the back. And he just appeared to be human. He was walking around with bones, muscles, and everything else. But he just was animating a body that was moving around. That's not true. Jesus has everything that we need to be a human being. Do we consider a person to be a dead body? He, it needs to be alive. It's animated by the Son of God. And besides, you can't squeeze infinity into the finite. God is taking on a human nature onto his divine nature. He doesn't lose anything of his Godness. So if he gave up a part of his being Godness, he wouldn't be God. And if he's not God, then he can't save us from God. has to be 100% God. But he also has to be a substitute. And if there is going to be a penalty that we as human beings have to pay, a human being has to pay the penalty. But this is a real sacrifice that Jesus is making. Because he grew up to be just like one of us. In fact, in Luke chapter 2, verse 52, it talks about Jesus increasing in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Jesus in his humanity had to learn things. He didn't come out of Mary's womb walking and talking and solving calculus. He was still a baby. As much as it says in a way in a manger, written obviously by a desperate parent who believes that perfect babies don't cry, <laughs> Jesus did cry. Cried it as an adult, why wouldn't he as a baby? The son of God needed to have his diaper changed. The Son of God had to be nursed. The son of God had to learn how to walk. Joseph had to show his son how to plane this plank of wood while the divine side of Jesus was holding all of those molecules of that wood together. That's a mystery. That's difficult for us to comprehend. But can you imagine the condescension for that? Can you imagine volunteering to be a quadriplegic so someone else could walk? And giving up all of your mobility and be totally dependent on someone else? That's really difficult for us to even imagine doing. That would be quite a condescension to give up your physical mobility. But here, Jesus is coming down from heaven and is choosing to live here on earth to live within human limits and to experience those things. The son of God hadn't felt cold before or hunger or pain. He's God. But through his human nature, he's able to experience everything we've ever been able to experience and more. He knows what it's like to be betrayed by close friends. He knows what it's like to have to get up every morning and go to work. He knows what it's like to deal with family members that don't believe him. Jesus has gone through all of that. But never once was he self-serving with it. Never once was he throwing a pity party. But he always did, thought, and spoke what was right. And everything that he did, he did for the glory of God and the advancement of that mission. So he didn't use his divinity for party tricks. There are other supposed gospels that were written around this time that contain fanciful stories of how Jesus you know, was playing in the mud and created a bird and when he was 12. or it would, uh, There was one story where Joseph cut a plank too short so Jesus grew it you know, to try to, to help fix his father's mistake. The, John chapter two says his first miracle was at the wedding of Canaan. That's where his ministry began. So he grew up just like one of us, experienced it all. That's why sometimes Mary and Joseph had a hard time understanding this whole Messiah thing, because they knew him as their son. Perfectly obedient son, perfect at every stage of life and expectation what he could, be, what he could do at 0, 2, 12, and 20. But he grew up like we did. And the reason why is in Hebrews. You can turn there with me. Hebrews chapter 2. Verses 14 through 18. It says since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. He is able to help those who are being tempted. You hear what Hebrews is saying here? We owed a debt to God. We needed to pay a penalty, but we couldn't possibly. So Jesus became everything that we were, except without sin. Jesus never sinned, didn't have a sin nature. But what he had was a perfect human life that he lived on our behalf. And now we can claim that life because it's a human life that he lived. Temptations that he had to resist, but yet always did it without sin. And then what's amazing is that he then, the reason, the chief reason why he takes on this human nature is because God can't die. If God was to die, then the whole universe would pop out of existence, all just fly apart. So God takes on a human nature so he can die through this human nature. Pay this penalty and set us free. Now, just to clarify, when it says here, there's the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. This is something that the Lord allows the devil to use, but the power of death is never beyond God's use. It's not like the devil's got the corner market on death and God's just trying his best to try to work against Satan. Like those, As Luther said, the devil is God's devil. He doesn't have to pay a ransom to the devil for us. But he is using this power of death to defeat even his own enemies at his own game to bring us salvation. This is why he's fully human. And he's fully divine as well. As so we look into, I think this is what Hebrews 9 is getting at when it's making reference to these Old Testament sacrifices. It says, For if the blood of bulls and goats and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God? I think what he's saying here is that this divine and human nature work together. If Jesus was just a perfect human, that's as far as the sacrifice could go. He could pay for his sins. But because the person of the Son of God could die in human nature, now it's an infinite sacrifice. So that all who would believe can be sure that their sins are forgiven. I know this is a lot of information. So let's make this practical. How does the Son of God, 100% God, 100% man, united in one person together, how does this make a difference to you today? Well, one of the first things that I want to point out is that, as it mentioned in Hebrews chapter 2, that what we have by him taking on flesh, that he becomes a merciful and faithful high priest. He understands what it's like to be human, not just in knowledge, but in experience. Have you ever had a doctor who has treated you for something that that doctor has had? There is a level of compassion that comes with that as well. Jesus understands, because he has literally been there. We're not praying to someone who intellectually knows what it's like to suffer and die, but who's felt it literally in his bones. This is the God that we worship. But it goes beyond that. It goes beyond having a God who's able to say, Oh, yeah, I understand what that's like but he can also deliver you from those things. He's also God. There's a campaign that's been going around, and I'm sure you'll see more and more of it as the the thing kind of rolls on. I think they've got some time in the Super Bowl. It's a campaign called He Gets Us. It's a well-intentioned campaign that's trying to, in their words, reintroduce Jesus to a skeptical world. And what they're emphasizing is how much Jesus understands our trials and tribulations. Jesus has felt pain. Jesus has felt abandonment. And they go a little too far on some things. It's like Jesus has felt anxiety. It's like, no, no, Jesus told us not to be anxious. But, you know, quibbles here and there. The thing that this misses is that Jesus does more than understand what you're going through. But he wants to use those things to transform you into something new. It isn't just putting his arm around you and going, there, there, I understand what this is like, and there's really no hope for you, so I can just sit here in your misery. But he offers more for you than that. He doesn't just get you, he transforms you. Because he is the Lord. Because he is in control. And that's the next bit of practicality that I want us. To understand from this passage as i want you to understand from every passage really is that we need to submit to him this isn't just a teacher See, he'd be a bad teacher by receiving worship if all he was was a man we're not following an example but we're surrendering to a lord by repenting of our sin and putting our trust in him We don't follow after Jesus like we follow after people on the social media, checking in on them when it's convenient and seeing if we like what they have to say. When we're following after Jesus, this is surrender to a king, the giving up of our own agenda to our lives at the feet of our Lord. That's just what we have to do. I think the next thing Maybe the final takeaway that I want us to learn from this passage is that this should give you an enormous amount of comfort and security, assurance of your salvation. What more could God possibly do for you? What else? Needs to pay the penalty for your sin by dying in human flesh? Done. Well, we still sin. We need someone to live a perfect life. Check. Jesus was a baby and a man. And if you think, well, he was never an old man. He doesn't understand that. His body's 2,000 years old now. He understands. He's felt pain. But also he's God. God. And if you find more comfort and more assurance of your salvation that you read two chapters of the Bible today than the Son of God dying for your sins, I don't think you grasp what Jesus has done for you. Maybe that's why it's so hard. Because we don't see the gift that he's given to us. There is no payment that he could offer more than that. The judge himself has walked off of the bench, gone to prison for you, and has said, you're free. So follow after me now. That's the story of your salvation. So follow after him. He's done the work. He's paid the penalty. He's lived the life. But more than that, one last thing you know Jesus didn't give up that human nature either? He still got it. When he finished his walk in heaven, or walk on earth and ascended up into heaven, he didn't go, whew, glad that's done, and throw off the human nature. He stayed in it. And still does today. So it mentions this in 1 Timothy 2.5. He says, for there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and man. The man, Christ Jesus, who Hebrews 13 says is yes the same yesterday, today, and forever. But he is still a human being. Why? Why would he hang on to that? Part of it, as some commentators had mentioned, is he's showing that the body is not a prison to get freed from but it is a good thing that God has given to us and something that he uses and is a beautiful part of God's creation. But more than that, in Romans chapter eight, Romans chapter eight, verse 34, it says, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us? In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Why? Because Jesus is continuing to pray for you now. He is the go-between between man and God by being man and God. That's the gift of incarnation, people. That's Christmas. It's a mystery. But it's the most important mystery in the world. Jesus understands what you're like. It's why he's going to change it and make you new. And he can do it. Not because he's some dead teacher that said some helpful things 2,000 years ago but because he is present and alive today and working in your heart. That's Christianity. That's the incarnation. That's Christmas. Let's pray. Oh, Jesus, we thank you for this marvelous mystery that you've given to us for designing the whole world to make this possible. So I pray that we would be grateful for it. I pray that we would be moved to greater assurance that our salvation is in really good hands, that no matter if no one knows what we're going through, that you do. And even if no one else on earth is praying for us, you are. So I pray that you would help us to rest in that. ask all these things in Jesus' name, amen.